What's up, everybody? Welcome to the new Hustling Grind podcast. I'm your host, Noah Bloomberg of Any Everywhere Forge. I'm here, as always, with Ryan Coakley from Ryan Shadborn Knifeworks. Hello. And our very special guest, Noah Vashon. How's it going, Good. guys? How's it going? Great. This is like deja vu. It is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, so technical uh, issues are always present, I feel like, in every podcast. So today is no different. But uh, but anyways, so what's uh, – I don't know. We don't norm, don't normally do this, but uh, what, what's your guys' week's been like? Ryan, let's let's hear about what you've been getting going on in your shop. Dude, my week's been crazy. I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm like, it's <laughs> Christmas time. I got tons of custom orders, and then I take on this batch, this 50-knife – bulk batch that I promised by New Year's. So Damn. That's a lot of knives, man. Yeah, I've got 64 knives to make by the end of the year. Dang, that's nuts. So so what kind of knives are the, are the batch of 50? They're just like these little mini cleavers. Like uh, I described them to my brother as the knife equivalent of a banger tattoo. Like, you know, like they just do little infinity symbols on people and it takes them 10 minutes. Gotcha. These take a little longer than 10 minutes, but there's like barely a bevel on them. There's no liners. It's just black G10 with brass. Um, so I should be able to pump them out pretty quick, but. And what's the purpose of them? What are they buying them for? A restaurant in New Jersey. What do they use a mini cleaver for in a restaurant? Steak knives. A cleaver huh. is a steak knife. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like their logo is a, is a cleaver. So it's like a little niche thing that they do for the uh, restaurant. I think they're selling them too because they want fifty a month. So this no, that's a great order. That's no, no, awesome. They, they just expect a bunch of them to be stolen. Is all. They actually posted a video, like a funny like Instagram video of a customer stealing one and them taking him into the butcher shop and cutting his hands off. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. So all right. It's a it's a fairly big restaurant, and if it does turn into a reoccurring thing, it could definitely be a, a game changer. The thing I need to quit my full time job. So that's crazy, dude. Well, wow, congratulations, and I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Until like three thirty in the morning last night. Yeah, that's gonna be like the- every day for you, isn't it? Like, I mean. With that many knives yeah. to get done in that short short period of time, you're gonna be hitting it hard. Yeah. I've been out here pretty hard. The silver lining in that though is that you're gonna get so fast at making them. They're just gonna become more and more profitable as you go along. Yeah. Right? You're gonna get your systems down get perfect. Down and- yeah. 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 There'll be a well oiled machine by the end of it. Oh, for sure. And like, uh, I told them like, I need a couple extra weeks cause they wanted them in a month. And I said, I need like six weeks cause I got to retool. I need larger quench tanks or several of them. Um, you know, cause you can only do like five or six at a time before my tank gets too hot. So have you, have you seen the quenching method, um, that Blenheim Forge does on a lot of their batch runs? I was going to ask that. Yeah. So what they do, and I've actually experimented with this a little bit, basically you've got a five-gallon bucket, a metal five-gallon bucket of quench oil, and you, in 
you can do it a couple different ways, but what I've done is you just take a rod of pin stock and run it through the rearmost pinhole in your, in your blade. And so you've got all of those knives laying on their spine and you've got that rod that goes through there. And not only does that, you don't need a, a fixture in your oven at that point. You can just have it re- resting on that, that pin rod. And then you pull all of them out with your tongs and quench all of them all at the same time. Oh, that's a good idea. I think you can do it with all thread too. You can use all thread with some nuts, right? Just tighten the nuts up on either side of the tang and that'll kind of like keep it from flopping around too much. Um, Mm -hmm. I've also seen guys just put a little spot weld on the back. I mean, maybe that's not so great if you're doing full tang, but if you're doing hidden tang, I mean, who cares if there's a little spot weld? You can just weld all the tangs onto a rod and they're all rigid and then snap them off after. I've seen that as well. And yeah, if you, like, like you said, if you're doing a hidden tank, it doesn't matter. Hmm. I'll figure it out or I won't and I'll fail, but I don't think I'm going to fail. I'm fucking way too obsessive to, to fail. Nah, it'll be good. Well, cool. All right. So, uh, Noah, what, uh, what's your week looked like? What you been up to? Yeah, well, I so I just got back from um, from Maine, actually, not too far from where Ryan is, um, in Auburn, where the New England School of Metalwork is, and I was taking a class there with Jason Morrissey. He was teaching an advanced Mosaic Damascus class, which I was super psyched about. I mean, I'd been waiting for this like all year. I've been excited to go down and do this, and uh, oh, it was just awesome. Learned a ton. Learned a ton. Like a, like a kid before Christmas is like, oh, it's, it's almost here. Oh, totally. And I mean, like timing wise, as you guys know, this is not the greatest time to like take a week away from your shop, obviously. I mean, uh, you know, opportunity cost wise, right? Like we're all supposed to be just, you know, burning the candle at both ends this time of year to try to make as much as we can. And at this time, you know, take advantage of the Christmas rush or whatever. Right. But, um, yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, it was great. It was really nice to just get a break from the shop and and just focus on R&D, basically, right? I mean, it's the kind of thing that, as a guy who's trying to make money making knives, I don't really get enough of that. I'd love to do more creative, like, experimental stuff. But, like, you know, every month you got to try to make sure you bring in enough dough and just, you know, fussing around in the shop trying to learn new stuff is not making any money. So it's great. It was awesome to set aside that time and... uh just learned a ton. Well, it's an man. investment. It's an investment in yourself and in your business. So, oh yeah, you know, it's a, that's important stuff. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, you got to try to set aside at least like a percentage of every week to doing stuff like that, and to just have like this no holds barred week of solid learning was was really really cool. They're doing a lot of great stuff down there at that school. It's amazing. I don't know if you guys have visited, but um, they have an, an awesome facility, um, packed class schedule, and some really high-end level stuff that they're teaching. I mean, well, at all levels, they do, like, real beginner stuff, too, and all the way up to, like, this one, which was the advanced Mosaic Damascus class, which is pretty, I guess, high level, right? I mean, learning from Jason Morrissey, it's high level. Yeah. No, oh, for sure. And I, I think I've heard you talk in, in, in the past about how you really, that's, that's sort of your goal in your next evolution of your business is to really get into that, that mosaic to kind of scratch that itch. Is that right? Totally. I mean, I, I see 
my progression as a maker as, as being always about leveling up. Like, um, I've never really been too interested in just kind of like stopping at a certain point and saying, okay, I've learned enough and now it's just about production. Now I'm just going to keep making this same knife over and over and over again and try to make a living. Like that's not why I got into knife making. I mean, I'm doing this because it's definitively not a regular job and it allows me a whole lot of creative freedom and um i'm a sort of like obsessive learner you know i love learning new stuff that's the thing that really gets me excited about going into the shop every day is the opportunity to up my skill level learn something new surprise myself um and so like the, the mosaic has been ever since i started that's been like you know the goal that i've been aiming towards and it's always seemed really far away um and so anyway it's just really exciting to finally be starting to do some of these things that i've been dreaming about doing for a long time the flip side of that is figuring out how to monetize it because you know up until now well when i started out i was doing stock removal stainless steel at, at you know really affordable prices and then every year i'm adding new skill sets right yeah ryan you know what i'm talking about and and at a certain point you're like oh I'm making stuff now that my clients who've been with me since the beginning can't afford. You know what I mean? Like they've been amazingly supportive, but at this point I've kind of like started making stuff that my client base is, it's just, I've, they've been priced out of it in a way. So you got to try to find the clients to be able to buy the work that you want to make. That's like the kind of conundrum, I guess that I've been in, um, which, you know, enter things like working with dealers, who have already a client base for that kind of high end stuff. Um, so anyway, my goal has been not just learn how to make it, but learn how to sell it. <laughs> right. Well, so that's can, completely understandable. You know, you're, yeah. you're talking about, you know, a, a whole different expansion of your customer base that you're trying to, trying to work into and finding those people and, and figuring out how to work into that niche. Um, Right. So you just mentioned uh, working with dealers, and I I heard you recently talk about an experience that you had um, with trying to get your foot in the door there um, with with a, a third party retailer of of handmade products. Yeah, and you you talked about how you had gotten a bunch of notes back the first time you sent them in, and you thought that somebody had to have gone over it with a, a micrometer. So. <laughs> If, there, if there's if there's any any guys that are listening to this podcast that are sort of in that same stage of trying to level up and trying to um, you know work into that higher end market, would you mind talking a little bit about what some of those things were? You know what were what was some of that feedback that that you had to you know reach to to put yourself into that next level? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you could sum it all up by by saying it was about refining the things that I was doing to an even further extent, you know, like you talk about things like, um, the thickness of your edge before you put, you know, you, before you sharpen it, let's say, um, and having that be super consistent from heel all the way to tip. Um, and if you're using like cheapy calipers, uh, and not being super precise about where you're measuring, you might kind of think, well, that's all, it's all like within like, you know, five thou to nine thou, that's probably close enough. Well, it depends who you're selling the knife to. Some people are really detail oriented. And I think it's especially true when you go up to that, you know, more expensive level. Um, you're dealing already, you're dealing with an educated, uh, client essentially, right? Someone who really knows stuff. 
So, I mean, none of the things that I was, that, uh, that I got as notes were like deal breakers. And the truth is most of the things were, were things that I kind of was already aware of, but that I thought they were well within spec, right? You know, there's, you aim for perfection, you, ex- you accept a certain standard. And everyone up until then who I'd sold knives to, this totally was adequate. And I mean, I would say for 99% of the people, that's perfectly adequate. But if you're going to spend 2000 bucks on a knife, you want it perfect. And so perfect is kind of now <laughs> what I really need to strive for. Um, and I mean, that's totally understandable. I get it. You know, I, it, it basically, I think the process was I had to be educated on what the standard was when I'm working in that level. Um, and from what I've heard, I'm not the only person who's had that type of feedback when trying to enter into that game. You know what I mean? Um, well, that so, makes perfect sense. You know, yeah. to a certain degree, we're all working by ourselves, isolated in our shops. You know, we're only educated based on, you know, the, the, the feedback that we get, you know, not in person, you know, with people that aren't actually holding, you know, our knives in their hands, you know, you, you post up a picture and, you know, you get feedback from other knife makers and they're like, Oh, it looks awesome. Or, Oh, Hey, you know, you know, the choil looks kind of like, eh, or, or whatever, but that's only what you can see in photos. You know, you don't get that, that one-on-one feedback. And I feel like that's, that's really valuable. And it's something that, you know, when, when I first started knife making, I loved the, the aspect of it is I can take this as far as I want to. I don't have to make it perfect because the customers that, I'm, that I sell to, they aren't going to notice that, you know, the deviation in, in the edge geometry, you know, they're not going to, it's just not even going to occur to them, but yeah. you, you, you can spend that amount of time if you want to, and you can mm-hmm. get it perfect or you can, you can just accept, Hey, these are flaws but I'm going to attribute that to the character of the knife and, and just be okay with it. But that is something that's definitely interesting about moving into that higher level where if you don't know what the standard is, then how do you know how to meet it? Totally. And there are standards at different price points, right? I'm not going to try to meet the same standards for a $2,000 knife as I will on a $300 knife. You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense. Like at, at a certain right. point, if you're trying to, if you're trying to make any money selling a $300 knife, you have to stop working on it at a certain point. And obviously there are still, there are standards for that that you can't fail at. You need to make sure that you meet those standards. But, but to your, to your point about, you know, feedback, I think, I think we sometimes get lulled into this sense of I'm doing everything perfect because the only feedback we get typically is positive. If you sell a knife to a client who doesn't like it, chances are you're just not going to hear anything from him. You're going to hear from the guys who liked it. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, you know, like when you get a haircut, no one ever says, what the fuck, what the fuck's up with your haircut? They just say, Oh, nice haircut. You know what I mean? Like no one ever says anything yeah. mean about it. It's always going to be a positive comment or no comment. And so that, that can kind of give you a false sense of your own abilities sometimes too, right? So it's great to hear that like, Honest, educated, truthful critique. Um, and that just to be able to take that for what it is, not like, you know, get, get offended or whatever and just say, this is a learning experience, you know, I, you know, it's good. It's really good to have that level of feedback. Absolutely. So before we get off of this, this subject here, so there was a particular knife that I believe was one of these ones that we're talking about now where you had an integral bolster that I 
I'm pretty confident was the most interesting integral bolster that I've ever seen on a knife. Would you mind oh, cool. describing that? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been getting into the integral game and I guess I didn't want to just start doing the stuff that everyone else was doing. I wanted to try to figure out something new. Um, and I've always loved the look of San Mai. So this was a San Mai blade. I had like 80 CRV2. No, actually it was 52100 for that one was the core. And then nickel layers and then wrought iron as the jacket, which is a really nice, um, combo. Like rod is, rod iron is so much fun to work with. Like it's really, really, you know, intricate in its kind of pattern, wood grain pattern and stuff. So this, yeah. So, and then in terms of what the integral was, was it was essentially rounded out. I wanted to do like a very almost like spherical bolster with very kind of like crisp intersection with the blade. So I spent a lot of time, you know, working with files and stuff like that, which in, in, in my material choice, I was lucky because wrought iron is fairly soft. So, you know, if you're working with files, it's, it's fairly forgiving nickel too. I mean, it's more or less pretty soft when you're filing it. So, um, yeah, so that was that knife. And I've also been sort so, of getting a, yeah, go ahead. Oh, so on, on the bolster itself, so there was the, the two lines that almost lined up perfectly with the, the bevel where the bevel started or, or the, you know, right up at the spine. So was that two nickel layers that were part of that integral bolster? Yeah, exactly. So I put nickel in there. Uh, mo- I mean, it's, it's aesthetic, but it also serves a functional purpose, right? It's, it's preventing carbon migration and I didn't want to be losing all the carbon in my core to the, to the jacket. So the nickel layer stops that from happening. And it also just really looks pretty sweet because it always stays super white, super bright. Um, and yeah, sand mice, as you know, I've seen you, you've done some sand mice stuff. It's tricky to keep that core centered, right? Um, oh, yeah. so that, that one was a bit of a struggle for sure. As I, as I worked it, you know, to try to keep everything. Cause I oh, knew yeah. those nickel layers were going to be really obvious. It's not like the, the core and the jacket were similar, you know, we're going to blend into each other with those bright nickel layers. You better get those lines right. Otherwise it, you know, it looks wrong. So, so for the listeners who don't know or can't visualize what we're talking about, basically what it looks like is, is this, this integral bolster almost looks like these nickel layers are acting as liners like you would see on a full tang knife. So yeah. you can imagine the precision required to keep that centered and keep everything lined up to where these nickel layers look like liners on the bolster was mind blowing when I first saw it. It, it was incredible work. I, I was, I was blown away. Oh, cool, man. Well, thank you. I mean, that was, that was the, that was the challenge that I put on myself essentially when I was trying to make these knives that I was sending off to a dealer. He was like, Hey, make something you can introduce your work to my clients with, which in my mind translated to the best thing you could ever possibly make, you know? And so that's what I was trying to do. I didn't hit that. I'm not not going to introduce them. I'm not going to introduce them to what I normally make. I'm just going to go blow everyone out of the water with this integral bolster that no one's ever seen before. Way to go. Well, I tried. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so speaking of the, the, the Sanmai, so I think your work with Sanmai was some of the first that I saw. And I, I could be wrong, but I believe it was the first stainless Sanmai that I saw. And so the re actually the reason that I started doing the stainless Sanmai, I think was entirely because of, you know, inspired by your work. Um, oh, cool. it's just something that I, I love doing because when you start off making carbon steel blades, there's so much 
education that you have to give to your customers about the, the, the care of it. And it's really difficult sometimes because people just don't get it. And you talk to them and they say that they understand it. And then you, they don't, they just don't, they, they say yeah. what they do. And they're like, Oh yeah, I've used carbon steel before. And then you give them the knife and you tell them about the care instructions. They're like, Oh, I didn't know that. Like, we just talked about this. Like, sure. We, we literally, so anyways, so the stainless sand Maya was sort of my way to kind of get into a more user friendly knife, you know, trying to keep as much of the stainless on the sides of the blade as possible. So yeah. you've got that cool look, you've got that corrosion resistance and you've got that core steel that's etched just dark as possible so that it resists corrosion as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, a great look. matter. And practical. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, also, sand Mai is a good one if you're just starting to get into, like, pattern welding or forge welding because, I mean, it's a fairly simple billet to construct on your own, right? I mean, it's just three layers. You're not going too crazy with, you know, folds and adding multiple layers. Um, so it's kind of simple but also, you know, complex and, and tricky. Um, but, it, yeah, I think it, that was – I went through a sand Mai phase where I was like, I just – just want to focus on this. I just want to get good at this. And, and, you know, now I'm ready to kind of like, I guess maybe move on or add other things to the arsenal. I I do that also. I go through phases where there's something I want to, I want to lock down. So I just do it over and over and over again. Like, uh, like the, my diamond grinds that are modeled after your diamond grinds, um, for like a year straight, every chef knife I ground, whether it was a Nakiri or a Gaudo or anything, had a diamond grind in it just because I wanted to get it down, you know. Yeah, you did. So I guess you could say that the, the, that the both of us basically have just ripped off of you for like the last two years, I think is what we're getting from this conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't see it that way, man. That's, that's, you know, I mean, look, that's art. That's every field. Everyone's always borrowing from everybody else. And I mean, I certainly didn't come up with, you know, this stuff like I'm, seeing other people's work and getting inspired by it. And I mean, it's, it's cool. It's just cool to see ideas propagate from maker to maker to maker. And then, you know, it's like the telephone game that kind of like morph and, and turn into something new. And uh, I mean, that's, I think it's awesome. I, I think it, it, it's a lot like um, a natural progression with makers where we're all trying to find our own identity as a maker, everybody wants their own individual style and then you'll stumble on something that another maker does. And you're like, Oh yeah, I feel that, that, you yeah. know, like that's a little closer to what I think I should be doing. And, and I think imitation is also, uh, sorry, I was just gonna say imitation is an important part of that learning process. Like um, if I'm trying to learn something that, you know, I, an idea that I got from someone else, I'll just straight up, copy it first because that's how you understand you know how that how that gets accomplished you're not going to be able to like just put your own spin on it right out of the gate so you got to start by just learning the 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 established way and then let that progression happen kind of naturally through iterations i think yeah that's and that's pretty much a great great um, way of describing kind of just the way I do my handles because when I started doing my handles I mean they were I basically learned everything from my handles and forging and everything from Jason Knight's forge series and if you look at my handles you can very clearly see that they are influenced by Jason Knight 
to be fair, a lot of people's are. You can really see totally. the, you know, you can look at somebody's handle and you're like, oh, hey, look, they're a fan of Jason Knight, you know, like, it's just kind of the way that it is. Um, or, or just anybody who's learned from him, you know, he's, he's just got that style that's so ergonomic and user friendly that you, you just take that on. Um, Definitely I lost my train of thought. Well, you know, the, the, the class, just to tie it back in, like I took this class with Jason Morrissey cause I love his style and I want to know how to make Damascus like he does, which is what I did in the workshop. And now since I got home the last two days, literally it's keeping me up at night. How am I going to be able to use these techniques, which are very much pro- like proprietary and I do have permission to use them because I, you know, I took a class with him and that's kind of part of the benefit of, of studying with someone is you don't have to feel so guilty about ripping them off because they've shown you how to do it. You know what I mean? Um, but the trick is then not just continuing, continuing to rip them off, but you know, to, to, to evolve it and make it your own. So that's definitely the hardest part. Absolutely. Um, Ryan, real quick, um, I'm really loving this conversation. Can we throw an add-in real quick so that we can kind of get that over with? Yeah, these should be louder now, too. Uh, we'll do Maritime Night Supply first this time. And I had lunch with Lawrence yesterday. He's the first person from the maker community I've met in person. Um, and it was awesome. Cool. Thanks for Awesome. Me yeah, he's a good dude. Hustle & Grind is sponsored by Maritime Knife Supply. Whether you're looking for steel, abrasives, handle material, forges, epoxy, or anything for making in general, Maritime Knife Supply has you covered. And in the U.S. or Canada, they ship faster than the great Cobra Chicken Gooses that their country is known for. Go to Maritime Knife Supply, and when you buy a 10-pack of belts, get 10% off. And tell them we sent you, eh? Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. That's Luke from Crafty Man Forge, everybody. He did our voiceover work. We fired Chet. He just wasn't cutting it. But nope, Luke is our first, our full time producer now. So everything I, gets blamed on Luke now. I feel like I'm being extra quiet in this episode. I'm just fanboyed out over here watching like my knife icon and my co-host have a conversation. I'm like, holy fuck. <laughs> and I've told you before, right? You you could be the long lost twin brother of one of my best friends. Is that right? Yeah, like it, you you're, you're both tall. You have the same facial structure, and your voices are almost identical. I don't know what it is. I I get a lot of messages where people will send me pictures of people and be like, "I saw your doppelganger today," and like. I, I didn't think that my, you know, that there were that many people out there that apparently look just like me, but I've been confused. I've been confused for people in the past. Definitely. Um, I don't know if you guys watch trailer park boys, um, or if you're oh, familiar yeah. with that show. So I, when I was younger, I did a tour. I was in a band. I did a tour and one of the bands that we were touring with had this guy, Corey, who, who's one of the characters on uh, trailer park boys. And we did a tour of the East Coast of Canada where Trailer Park Boys are huge. I mean, they're superstars in Eastern Canada, if nowhere else. Um, and so everyone thought I was Julian because I was with Corey, who's another character from the show. And at the time, I had like a goatee and I wasn't wearing glasses. And I, you know, I was wearing all black because it was like a metal band. Um, so I had, I had to like really strongly 
like declare to people, I am not that person who you think I am. And of course, everyone's shit faced. We're at a bar and people didn't believe me. That show's very popular here because they come to Bangor, Maine in one of the episodes. Ah, that's why. Because I heard a lot of people in Maine mentioning that show. And I was like, why is it popular in Maine? Okay, there we go. Yeah. Yeah, they come down here. And, like, geographically, we're close. In that episode, they're not actually in Bangor. I've lived here my entire life. Wherever they were is not here. <laughs> but Right. Probably yeah, still Truro, Nova Scotia. Yeah. We've talked about it on the show quite a bit, how much I love goofy, ridiculous TV. And that show's just ridiculous. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's so awesome. you you said you were you were touring. Uh, you were in a band, or yeah. I, so I mean, I've I've gone through many different, I guess, creative stages. But the first and most long lived was as a musician. Um, from the age of about fifteen, I was playing in bands, and then moved to Toronto and uh, joined a band that was already established and had a you know label, and I was just the guitar player. And it was cool because it gave me an opportunity to see what, you know, to get a taste of what it's like to be in a band that's signed and that has a little bit of money behind it. And we did a tour and that was lot like loads of fun. Um, and then I left that night for my own band and did not have the same level of success as my, as a band leader as I had as a guitar player. It's also a hell of a lot more work. Um, but, uh, but yeah, music was like a huge part of my life, uh, for, for, you know, 20 years or something like that. And, uh, and yeah, I still play music. I'm, you know, music is always going to be a part of my life for sure. It's just not something I have any dreams of making money doing. Do you sing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I started out as like a singer songwriter and then managed to find other musicians to kind of like put a band together playing the songs that I'd written and turning it into a bit more of like a rock kind of thing than just like a folky thing. Um, but, uh, yeah. And I still play, I play music with my parents. We did a concert actually at a farmer's market this summer with like the family band or whatever. And it was, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I that's found awesome. that's a, that's a trend with people our age. The, the, uh, dream of becoming a famous musician that you don't really like the newer kids all dream of being like, Instagram famous and TikTok stars and YouTube famous YouTubers in our generation. It was musicians. Everybody wanted to be in a band. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And that dream, uh, for, you know, all of us pretty much didn't come true. (laughs) Yeah. I I think it's a lot harder to be a band than a YouTube star. (laughs) My brother and I just started a new podcast and, um, he goes, he goes, yeah, man, I can do all the audio editing cause I'm a failed musician. So I spent so much time doing that for nothing <laughs> when I was younger. I was like, yeah, you are a failed musician. <laughs> yeah, so he, can, he can shred though. You know, awesome. I, I might be, a, I might be a failed musician, but as soon as we do Florida man or fraud here, you, there's anybody that's going to be listening to this podcast is going to hear my music. So it's fine. Oh yeah. Nice. You got a little jingle uh, or what? Oh yeah, no, yeah. I, I put together a jingle and it is probably by far, I don't know how many people listen to this, you know, four or five people probably listen to this podcast and that's probably the most popular my music has ever been. So just saying. That's awesome. <laughs> Why don't we roll right into that while we're talking about it? Oh geez. Okay. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, 
Get ready to play. Is it Florida Man or Fraud? That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for Florida Man or Fraud, the part of the show where I read off a listener-submitted headline. And you lovely people at home, Ryan and Noah, get to guess whether this person truly was a Florida man or a fraud from somewhere else. The first headline reads, man charged with smuggling pythons in pants at U.S. border. Oh, no, I didn't block out the words. This is poor preparation on my part. Normally, I go through the story and I block out the locations so that I don't accidentally read off the... uh, (laughs) the actual location of the person. So this is going to be tough. I'm going to read a little slower here. I apologize. A man has been charged with smuggling three Burmese pythons in his pants at a border crossing. This individual, 36 years old, is accused of bringing the hidden snakes on a bus that crossed into blah, blah, blah. Uh, Importation of Burmese pythons is regulated by an international treaty and by Regulations listing them as, them as injurious to human beings. Uh, <laughs> he was arraigned Tuesday in blank on the federal smuggling charge and released pending trial, according to a news release from the office of blah, blah, blah. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, the charge carries a potential for a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison and a fine as high as $250,000. Uh, the Burmese python, one of the world's largest snakes, is considered a vul- vulnerable species in its native Asia and is invasive in Florida, where it threatens native animals. Now, I left that last location in there on purpose. Are you trying to throw us off? Have to, you're going to have to figure out why. <laughs> well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't imagine if they're invasive in Florida, you would need to smuggle them into Florida. You know, that feels like a real news clip to me. I mean, if it's a fake, whoever did that put a lot of good work into it. Okay, so real clips. Yeah. The question isn't whether or not it's fake; it's whether or not it was Florida. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say that's got to be real. Although I'm beginning to think that we need to change this segment because I think the majority of our guests have thought that it was either a fake headline or a real headline. That's Maybe what we I thought. should just change the segment into like fake headlines. The problem then is, is that I have to come up with a convincing sounding uh, news headline that, that actually reads like that that's not. So I don't know. We'll see. That's the trick. Mm. I'm going to go fraud on this one. It's not Florida. I'll go Florida just so that we have two different, you know, points of view. I'll, I'll, I'll go Florida man. One of us, one of us will win. One of us will be right. You're not wrong. Although Noah is because that was Albany, New York. Huh. Wow. And it was actually a Canadian that was trying to smuggle it into the U.S. for some reason. So, uh, I don't, did I say who that one was sent in by? No. Okay, so that was sent in by Aru Bladeworks, who uh, sent it in with the caption, uh, is that a python in your pants, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> <laughs> How big was this python? Uh, I don't think the article said, um, but 
I feel like the pythons would have been small, but his balls were big. Because that's, I mean, that's ballsy. Imagine sticking that. I I don't want a deadly snake in my pants. That's a terrible idea. Not to mention going through the border like that. I mean, I get nervous if I have like an unopened pack of cigarettes on me or something like that. You know, like (laughs) I hate the border. There's no fucking way I would put snakes in my pants and try to cross the border. Oh, and they're constrictors. Oh yeah. (laughs) What if the little guy, you know, like wraps around your? Oh, just so many ways that that could go bad. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, I got, I got one more and I, it was sent in and I can't find the message that uh, somebody sent it in with. So I apologize. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead. I'll try and give credit for that one next week. Um, This one was one that I found myself. Um, And uh, let's see if you guys can come up with this one here. The headline reads, Man uses welding grinder to remove gang tattoos on his face after he turns his life around. Oh. Uh, Eric blah, 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 22 of blank was nearing the end of his two-year welding course when he realized the gang tattoos on his face would make it difficult to get a job. So he had a classmate remove them with a wire, with a wire wheel. A wire wheel is a grinder used to prepare the surface of the objects to be welded prior to the procedure. It stripped off several layers of skin and the tattoos off of his face. All that remains is red skin that looks similar to a rash. Um, yeah, there's a picture here. Um, it, it doesn't look similar to a rash. It looks pretty jacked up. Like it's, that, that was a bold oh. strategy, Cotton. Ooh. God. Oh. That's so do you wild, think that this, man. this guy who took a, the angle grinder with a wire wheel on it to his face was a Florida man or not. That sounds like Florida, bro. That's yeah. At, at, the, like. at the risk of, <laughs> at the risk of insulting, you know, your Floridian audience, I'd say Florida man. Oh. Brian, Florida man, final answer. Oh yeah. That's rough, dude. I'm like cringing <laughs> over here. That's bad. Ding, ding, ding. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. That is absolutely Florida. <laughs> that was an easy one. Oh, There's yeah. so many figured, better ways to I do a give a, I'll, I'll give you a, a gimme here. Yeah, that was Eric Mackis, 22, of Clearwater, Florida. I want to know if he was sober when he did that. Uh, I don't know, because he was – I mean, he had to have been on probation. He was doing a two-year welding course, so I'm guessing that was probably, like, a state-funded, like, probation-type thing. So he probably had to be sober for it. I'd want some oxy. <laughs> oh, my God. Put me to sleep. That's crazy. And a wire wheel at that, like, you could do it with a grinding wheel and just, like, you know, take off the layers of skin. Right, yeah, the wire wheels, it's not precise. I mean, that's going through, you know, some parts of it are going through two layers of skin, some are going through seven. Like, it's, ugh. Not to mention, it's right next to your eyes. His gang tattoos were right here. So, I mean, you're talking about, like, gang tattoos that, I mean, that wear wheel is like, it's it's hitting your eyelashes as it's going across your face. Dude, wonder how hard he had to convince his buddy to do it. It's Florida, not that hard. Did work on him for a week, like, Come on, man. Come on. I got to get rid of these tattoos. And the guy's like, no, bro, that's pretty fucked up. <laughs> like, no, oh. it's Florida. He was probably like, you want me to do what? Hell yeah. Hold my beer. <laughs> hold on. 
You know what take that off quick? A wire wheel. Mm-hmm. It was probably uh-huh. his buddy's idea. He's probably like, man, I need to get like laser surgery or something, but I can't afford it. Shoot, man, I got you. Lay down on that table right there. I got this weld and this wire wheel right here. We'll take them suckers off in about two mm. minutes. I got you, buddy. <laughs> Dude, that could go bad like in so many ways with a quickness. More Every of the time story, I wire kids, wheel anything, I don't find... wire wheel your face. Yeah. Anytime I wire wheel anything in the shop, I find the wire wheel shards like all over the place, stuck in my fucking belly. Like, oh yeah. That's Wear awesome. safety glasses, kids. But while we're talking about abrasives, why don't we drop our next sponsor, PhoenixAbrasives.com, where you why can not? buy wire wheels you, if you know you want to take them to somebody's face. But but don't Hustle and Grind is sponsored by PhoenixAbrasives.com, your one-stop abrasive shop. They stock all the abrasive belts you need in all sizes. They also offer knife-making kits, which have all the goods you need in one kit, as well as hand-sanding and buffing materials. Go to PhoenixAbrasives.com and use the code HUSTLE10 for 10% off your order. Speaking tattoos... Um, I think I saw Ryan. You have a, a Joe Rogan tattoo. Is that your leg that you were shaving with a Joe Rogan tattoo? Okay. So my question for you, which is, that's cool. My question is, did you get posted? Did he like repost your tattoo? Because I think he does usually, right? So he did. He did yeah, he did. It did was... it help out your following? Uh, yeah. It did. <laughs> it changed. It. it changed everything. It Shut up. changed everything. Wow. Yeah, it did. I was, so that, I was struggling. Wow. I didn't have it. And this was like a week, a uh, month ago, right? Noah? Oh, Probably yep. three weeks ago. And I only had a couple orders in. I'm like, fuck, I'm going to miss this Christmas rush. Joe Rogan shared my reel and I, like, I didn't even tag him in it. Somebody sent it to him and he shared my reel and I gained 600 followers in about 18 hours. I wow. sold 14 custom orders in about three days. And then the restaurant that wants the big batch saw that post and reached out to me. That's like the best marketing strategy I've ever heard. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> Other com- like comedians joke about the Rogan bump and like Shane Gillis calls him St. Rogies. <laughs> like if St. Rogies says your name, then you're okay. You know, right. and it's amazing that w- that one man has that kind of influence. That all he has to do is speak your name, literally, and your whole and your whole life will change. It is crazy how much how much power some people like that have. Like uh, for for me, like the big one is is Elon Musk. Like that dude controls the stock market with his Twitter account. Like that yep. that guy tweets out a, a, a meme based currency. And thousands of dollars change hand overnight. Like it's crazy. Millions, yep. millions of dollars changed hands overnight just based off of this meme currency that he was, he was posting about for a while. It, it's, it's infuriating that he did that because like when that happened, it was right around the time the stimulus checks were coming out. And so naturally in retrospect, I was like, Oh, if I had spent my whole stimulus on Dogecoin, I'd be a millionaire. Mm-hmm. But who's going to make right. that decision in that moment? In that moment, uh, like, I, I am. So I'm going to get 200 <laughs> bucks off of that. 
Really? Nice. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I don't underestimate the, uh, the power of Elon Musk. And when I see he tweets about something that is currently trading for less than a penny a share. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to drop some money and, and make a few hundred bucks. So why not? Smart man. He's a madman. So anyway, so let's, let's, let's get back to knife making here. Um, cause we've actually been pretty well on topic today. So I, I feel like we should keep going. Um, Ryan, you were talking about the diamond grinds that Noah does. Mm-hmm. And Ryan and I had a discussion earlier in the week about what constitutes a, a diamond grind. And I was under the misconception that it was actually two hollow grinds stacked on one another. Um, is it, so it's a flat grind with a hollow on top. Is that correct? I mean, I just made it up, right? So that's how I was doing it. I thought I'm going to give this thing a name. And yes, it was, I, when I, when I first started trying to do it, I was looking at a whole bunch of people doing S grinds and they were using those, uh, like platins, like the 36 inch radius platen. And I wasn't, I just couldn't get comfortable using it. And like, it just wasn't working for me. Uh, and I had a, 14 inch wheel. So I started like, Oh, I'll just do like an S grind with a 14 inch wheel. And I started playing around. And at first I was doing stacked hollows, but in cutting tests, I actually didn't find that there was actually any advantage in terms of like food release with having the two hollows. And of course it's a lot trickier to grind and you end up with a very, very, very thin flexible knife, which, you know, has its place and there are advantages to it. But like, if you're trying to make a knife that's going to serve the majority of customers, there's like a middle road that you're trying to kind of go down. Right. Of course. And, and so, yeah. So the way that I did it was with a hollow on top and a, and a flat on the bottom that kind of leads to a bit of an apple seed. You know, there's a slight convexing only on the bottom, like um quarter of an inch, let's say. Okay. So, so two questions here. So first of all, you talked about the way that you, described it. So are you the first person to kind of come up with the idea of a diamond grind? And secondly, how would you describe the major differences between an S grind and a diamond grind for the listeners? So, okay. I had, when I was near the beginning of my knife making career, I was told AEBL was this hot trending steel by, um, by a, a retailer that I was selling my knives with. And so I ordered a crap ton of it and I got a whole bunch of blades, water jet cut and he treated a whole batch. And I basically had like a year's worth of, of basically, you know, inventory sitting there. And then all of a sudden I got the message, well, ABL's not so hot anymore. Like, have you got any, you know, any of these new hot steels? And I thought, oh crap, I'm sitting on this huge inventory of AEBL. And now you're telling me it's not cool anymore. Um, so I was like, I got to do something to sort of not only differentiate my, my knives from other people's knives, but also make this steel more appealing by doing something more interesting to it. And so I started experimenting with S grinds. Um, and, and then, like I was saying, I just, you know, never really got comfortable using the 36 inch, uh, platen. And, um, so yeah, diamond grind is just the name I came up with and it's, it's based on, uh, what it looks like when you look at the choil, basically, right? Cause I mean, you have right. this hollow right up near the spine and then you've got a flat. And, and if you look at the choil, it, it kind of looks like a diamond. And I was like, ah, diamond grind, give it a name so that, it, you know, it, it's its own distinct thing. And so I just started always using that name when I, when I made the knives. And then I saw 
other people starting to do it. And I, that name just kind of got bounced around, which is cool. And, um, it's, it's very similar in a lot of ways to an S grind, but I would say what makes it distinct is that it's, uh, a, a much deeper, um, hollow, like a, uh, of a smaller radius, eight, you know, a 14 inch wheel as opposed to a 36 inch wheel. It's a pretty big difference there. Um, it's pushed up closer to the spine. You've got a bit more flat than a hollow or than a typical S like a typical S. I think people leave usually like about three eighths down near the bottom. Um, and, uh, I mean, aesthetically, of course it has a bit of a difference. I hope I, at least my, I tried for it to be as good a performance, um, as a typical S grind, you know, like the tests that I did, uh, for food release seemed like it was, it was, you know, dropping food off the blade just as good as the S grind. So, um, but it, you know, functionally, same, same goal, you know, food release, aesthetically similar, but a little bit of a, you know, a tweak, a tweak on an existing idea is really what it was. Uh, so you're using a 14 inch wheel to set those hollows. Yeah. I, I, I started using a 10 and I found that, um, I wasn't getting it, uh, wide enough, you know, the hollow was too narrow at the depths that I, you know, was limited with by one eighth stock. And so quickly I switched to a 14 inch wheel because that gave me, you know, when you want to have like a blade that's at least two inches at the heel, the, that wider, that, you know, taller hollow not only looked better, but also pushed that, um, pushed the, the, the hollow closer to the cutting edge where it would be doing more work essentially. Oh, I'm yeah. using a four. A four. Oh. A full cool. Uh, I must be getting super deep in there. Have you ever checked to see how thick the web is, like at the very base of your, you know, where the two hollows meet? Um, I can see it where they come out the tip of the blade. Right. Um, but have you ever ground through? I. Yeah. Yeah. That's and are you, you ever ground that's through? Always, <laughs> yeah, I have. I so I never, I didn't grind through, but I got it so thin that it was like I could like push the little webbing back and forth with my fingers. And I, I was like, wow. yeah, that's that's probably no good. But are you starting with one eighth inch stock when you do your uh, diamond grinds? Yeah, okay, all right. Yeah. I mean, and like you know, how you, you know, how it looks cool. Your your cutting edge. I mark it up on the back too, up on the mm-hmm. spine. Mm-hmm. And and then I try and match my hollows to that, so the the web, as you call it, would be as thick as what the cutting edge is on the end before you sharpen it. Um, oh, cool! Yeah, that's interesting. I never even thought about that, really. But yeah, it makes sense. It's cool to see the the way things transition too, because that's how I ended up putting in fullers because I accidentally ground over my hollow one day, like I flat ground over it and I was like, oh, you can make a cool looking fuller like that. And I just finished the knife and I, now I still do it because it looks cool. Uh, happy accidents, man. I mean, it's full, yeah, knife accidents. making, knife making is full of that, right? Yeah, that's cool. So, so aside from like a, I don't know, like a Nikiri or a cleaver or something, for the most part, um, like on a standard chef knife, the spine doesn't flow at the same angle as your cutting edge. So when you're doing these, uh, these, these hollows for your diamond grind, I think most people who do, I could be wrong here. I'm, I'm, I'm nobody, so I don't know everything. Um, most people who are doing like an S grind, they're following the cutting edge with that hollow. 
as they go along. When mm-hmm. you're doing this diamond grind, you're following the spine. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, um, the, my process is basically the hollow is the first thing I grind. So I've got my full stock. I, I grind up with a push stick off a work rest and I grind that hollow so that it is parallel to the spine all the way along. Right. Which means that okay. at first so it, it looks it's awful. Here. It's, it's coming right off the end of the knife and it doesn't follow the cutting edge at first. Um, so, do you, so, yeah. so do you blend it so that it does after the fact, or, or is it just varying lengths of bevel on the cutting edge, depending on the shape of the knife? So when I'm doing distal tapers, which is the second process, um, I'm, so, so, you know, like, like when you have a distal tapered knife, you're cutting, uh, your, sorry, your bevel angle is not consistent. It's sort of a varying angle, right? So near the heel, right. it's a lot more obtuse. As you get out towards the, the tip, it's a lot more acute. Your, your bevels become almost parallel as you get towards the tip, right? And so when I'm grinding my bevels and grinding in the distal taper, that's when the, the part of the blade below the hollow starts to follow again. It comes back and it follows the cutting edge, essentially. Very. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, immediately when you said grinding in the distal tapers, it clicked on how that, that makes everything flow together. That's very cool. Right. And then I'll usually have to go back with the wheel again and just sort of reestablish. It's a bit of a back and forth. Like you're working the flat, you're working the hollow, you're working the flat, you're working the hollow. And that just sort of allows you the whole time you have control over that transition line and to, you know, to make sure that that flows and it's nice and straight. Very cool. Very cool. I, I love thinking through those processes and stuff and, and, and compound grinds are something that I've, I've played with, but nothing that I've really wanted to commit to. So he- hearing about uh, the way that other people go about it and everything and talking with Ryan and the way that he does his, is, it's always very interesting to me. So hopefully the listeners think so as well. Otherwise I just, I'm just rambling on. Wow. You guys are a nice podcast. <laughs> Some something I uh I realized very early in doing those compound grinds is you have to have faith in in what the end product's gonna be. Because like Noah said, they're very ugly in the mm-hmm. first like third of the grinding process. And like it's very easy to get discouraged and be like, Oh, I'm never gonna get this right or whatever, but through the full process of grinding the blade, what the beauty in it comes to life. And how adding the flats changes that line and everything up until, you know, having to go back and back and forth and fix lines or match them up on both sides with the wheel. Um, you, you have to have a lot of faith in what the end product will be because it yeah. turns out it, to make uh, It's easy to get discouraged though. And I think a lot of, a lot of people when they first start grinding, you know, they're, they're trying to establish their bevel and they're, they're putting in multiple facets and it, you know, it kind of looks like shit and, and they, and they get discouraged. But the truth is it only has to look good right at the end, right? It's, it's that last pass that you do. That's the only pass that has to be perfect. You know, if you're doing a belt finish, that's the only pass that has to be perfect. All the other ones can just be like, you screw it up the whole time. As long as you don't remove more material than you should. Um, you have a lot of time in there to sort of like get things straightened out and, you know, to set yourself up for that last pass, essentially. Yeah. Through the grit progression, because, you know, the higher the grit, the less material it's going to remove. So you, then you have to worry about heat, but 
Um, you have a lot, it, they take a long time to do, so you have a lot of time to sculpt it almost that's to it. where you want it to be in the end. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And the higher you get in grip, oh, go ahead. I, I actually struggle doing Nakiris more than the full chef knives. I've had a, I've screwed up more Nakiris doing diamond grinds than I have chef knives. Hmm. Interesting. I, ha- I haven't done a lot of Nakiris with the diamond grind. I've done a lot of them little minis, but I haven't done a lot of full size Nakiris with the diamond grind. So yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know what, what to, how to help that one out. Yeah. Speaking of Nakiris, um, you did a batch quite a while ago, I think of those mini Nakiris that you do. And you did a certain type of handle construction that I hadn't heard of before, but apparently is fairly common, which uh, is sometimes referred to as like a, a dowel. Um, the wa style. Assembly. When you're mm-hmm. doing a wa style handle, mm-hmm. doing, doing the dowel. And, and one thing that I hadn't seen before, I've seen since in other people's work, but I haven't seen before, is where you actually leave that dowel visible in kind of the bolster area as, as kind of part of the design of the knife. Um, where did you, where did you kind of get that idea? I don't think, no, I, that's not me. I don't do that. Um, I, I always hide it, but I've definitely seen guys who leave the dowel exposed. Like if you look at, um, Jez, uh, from Oblivion blades, uh, out of Australia, he'll do a lot of really cool stuff. And I think he's using actually like, hardwood dowels of a, of a nice wood, you know, I just use like poplar dowels, um, which are, you know, standard and easy to find, but I'm, but I, I always, I always cap it off. I mean, you might've seen a picture of like an earlier, an earlier stage, maybe, you know, I post a lot of work in progress stuff. So you might've seen something that looked finished, but it was probably missing like those, those little Nakiris that I did with the, uh, the Shusugi Ben, uh, curly maple, like the torched curly maple. I put, um, copper, copper end caps on there. So, so that essentially was hiding the end of the, the end of the handle and hiding the, hiding the dowel construction. I haven't gotten bold enough to kind of embrace or celebrate the dowel yet, but I think it's cool. I mean, it's a cool look for sure. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I apologize. I must've misremembered. So you do cap them off. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't done a whole lot of hidden tangs. And I was struggling with learning how to do them when I first saw that that process of yours. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's genius. Because, I mean, I don't have a very good, um, you know, reamer or hog out tool, whatever. They're, I'm, a brooch. I can't remember the A brooch. Thank you. Yes. I don't, I don't have a very good brooch. So I'm trying to, you know, I'm struggling trying to get these tang holes, you know, figured out and everything. And uh, that that dowel method really, really helped me early on when I was trying to figure out, you know, how to do a proper wah style or any sort of hidden tang, you know, that's a, uh, it's a really ingenious way to go about it. Yeah. It's really clever. When I first saw that, I thought, Oh, I mean, why, why fuss around with trying to make a rectangular hole? That's, that's a lot of work. Just make a round hole, slot a dowel, boom, gives you a rectangular slot. You know, it's like the easiest thing in the world. And it's great because the dowel acts as a pin, essentially, which aligns the components of your handle. And once it's all glued up, that dowel is a connective, you know, piece of material that that joins. You're not just dealing with butt, you know, butt joints of your various handle components. Then you've actually got a essentially a big wooden pin that kind of runs the whole length and and holds it all together better, you know. 
Absolutely. And I mean, when you're talking about a chef knife, you don't need a severe mechanical connection. You know, you don't necessarily need, you know, six pins or something holding it together. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be loosely held in a hand, hopefully like in, in a, in a pinch grip, you know, chopping vegetables. Like it's, it just needs to be comfortable. It doesn't need to be, uh, you know, something that's, that's meant to be held up to beating on blocks of ice, no matter what shows you watch. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I mean, a lot of the traditional Japanese handles, they're not even glued on, right? I mean, they're, they're just kind of burning them in and friction fitting them. It's a different mentality because the handle is seen as more of a disposable part of the whole blade or the whole knife, right? The blade is the thing that's going to last for a really long time. The handle's just some piece of wood you stick on there just to hang on to it. And when the handle starts to look like crap, you just whack it off and pop on a new one, which is a really cool, a really functional you know, thing to do, which, you know, makes me take pause sometimes about all this glue that we're using in knife making and the fact that we're trying to do everything so permanently. You can always still grind off a handle, I suppose, but it's not as, it's not as elegant to use epoxy as it is to like use other, you know, more mechanical or like the stuff that, um, uh, Ben Kamen is doing. Like you've, have you seen his work? He's in Switzerland and he's doing all mechanical stuff. So like the handle is held on with, with screws and bolts or whatever. And so it's like easily removable and it's really, really nice stuff. His work, his work is fantastic. I, I don't know if I've seen it. I'll have to check it out. But I think the back to what you were saying about, you know, the, the beating them off and throwing a new one on there and everything. I, I don't know. I'm really intrigued by that. And that sounds really cool. But at the same time, I'm trying to think of, you know, how things were made back then versus now we're all using, I I think for the most part, you know, really high quality stabilized handle materials that are going to last longer than they were expecting their handles to to last, you know, whenever it was that they were, they were making those traditional Japanese uh, blades. So I feel like, I feel like the epoxy and everything that we do is warranted just based on the legit, the longevity and durability of the materials that we're using versus before, I think. Yeah, I think that that's a good point for sure. And then, and then maybe on the flip side of that, we're using a lot of materials that without resin stabilizing, you would never be able to use because they just fall apart. (laughs) You know, like a lot of like the spalted and like burl and punky stuff. I mean, it's like, um, I, I, you know, I said, or yeah, or softer woods. Yeah, totally. I mean, they're, they're, that's material nobody would have ever dreamed of, you know, using for something practical because it's not, it's not, but it is, it's nice to look at. It is really pretty. I know I, I used some redwood recently for the first time. And I mean, obviously, you know, I, I know it's quality material. It's been K and G stabilized. So I know it's going to hold up and everything, but just grinding that versus grinding, you know, a stabilized <laughs> hardwood. I, I almost like, I mean, I, I got it a little bit thin in a spot where I didn't necessarily mean to just because it's so different. Like stabilizing yeah. is great, but it's not everything, you know, the, the, the original material matters. Totally. Mike Jones but, gave me some yellow cedar burl and that stuff was beautiful. Um, but it's so soft when you're grinding it. It's like, you know, usually I'm doing these, this vintage micarta or like stabilized maple and you kind of got that's night and a day. little bit. Yeah. Um, yellow cedar is like, whoop, it's gone. And that gets really tricky when you start doing handles with multiple materials, right? Like I do a lot of workshops and if, if, uh, if a 
somebody in my workshops like, oh, I'm going to use this uh, ironwood and this like spalted uh, soft, you know, curly maple. I'm like, okay, but when you get to the grinder, remember <laughs> that maple's coming off way faster than that ironwood is. So like, make sure you're adjusting your your pressure to to account for that, right? Because like, otherwise you're just going to end up like grinding a wedge mm-hmm. in the wrong way into your handle or whatever, right? So, yeah, when you're starting to work with different densities. Like- gets tricky. That is one yeah. material that I don't like working with is, is ironwood. I had somebody recently say, Oh, I really like the look of ironwood. And I was like, well, that's too bad. Because, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't work with ironwood. Sorry. That's not, not my thing. Uh, you know, it's, it's, and, and I haven't worked with it a lot, but when I did, I just, I, it wasn't an enjoyable experience. It looks incredible when it's finished and it, and it has this cool grain and the different colors and stuff. But, Man, I do not enjoy working with it. Yeah, it loads up the belts pretty quick, and it, it can burn, you know, and, and yeah. it stinks, and it, sure. It's like the wood equivalent of uh, canvas micarta. Yeah, uh, yeah. But but super durable. Right. It's a great it's a great wood if you're looking for a handle that's going to last a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I, my kind of one of the main knives I use in my kitchen. I made with an ironwood handle and. It it still looks great. It holds up great. Yeah. yeah I, I don't miss the time that it took to shape it, though. <laughs> or the belts you wasted doing it. Yeah. Yeah. How, however many that was. Let me ask you this, Noah. Do you use your ceramic belts on your handles? No, no. So, I mean, I, like everybody, when you first start trying to figure out what belts you're going to use, it's it's really opaque. It's it's a, it's a complicated thing to figure out. Um, and I, at first was using ceramic belts for everything. And then I had somebody mention to me, you know, ceramics not designed for wood. You probably shouldn't use it. And I did like a AB, you know, I tested, okay, here's, here's a, you know, 60 grit ceramic and here's a 60 grit aluminum oxide. And let's just see how they perform on the wood. And of course, cost is a huge, huge difference, right? I mean, it's like half the price for an aluminum oxide belt as a ceramic belt and the aluminum oxide which is designed for softer materials performs way better. It doesn't load as much. It's, um, it, you know, with ceramics, they, they are supposed to be worked on really hard material. They need to refracture, right? Like the, the, the grit needs to fracture to expose fresh, sharp edges, right? Which is why it's great for hardened steel, not great for wood. So yeah, I don't, I don't waste, I don't waste any, any of my ceramic belts on wood anymore. And I think it's probably not a great idea to use a belt that was good for, that was used on steel, um, on wood either, because you're potentially, you know, embedding your wood with, you know, maybe high carbon steel dust or whatever, which could then rust or, you know, especially with lighter woods, you can make the wood look kind of murky by, by using a belt that was used for steel. So yeah, I keep, I, for the wood, I, I just use aluminum oxide. That's cool to know. Another hot tip for all you listeners out there. <laughs> here, here, here's another one that I discovered recently that may benefit uh, some other people. I don't think you need to use ceramic when you go past 60 grit. I've started using like, like I'll do ceramic 36 and 60 on steel and then I'll use a zirconium 120 because I find a zirconium 120 lasts almost as long as a ceramic 120 and it's like a third or two thirds of the price, let's say, right? Yeah. 
And then when it comes to 220, there's no point in using a zirconium 220 or a ceramic 220 for that matter, because an aluminum oxide is going to last pretty much just as long. And that's your final, that's your final pass. You don't want to be using old belts. You want to use a new belt. And it's a lot less of a hit to the wallet to use a new 220 aluminum oxide than it is to use a new ceramic 220. Um, yeah. So, so I've, I've, I'm only stocking 36 and 60 in ceramic, 120 zirconium, and then the 220s are interchangeable for the wood and the steel. So that's again, like one less item to stock. Right. So anyway, that's, that was my like recent nerdy <laughs> revelation that may benefit some other people. I don't know. Well, that's a good I, point. And I, it's something that I've kind of struggled with for a while is that 120. I feel like this is like kind of the weird, like bastard child, like right there in the middle where you just, I've never found a, a solid like 120 ceramic belt that actually will last as long as like you were saying, like a 36 or a 60, yeah. they just gum up and, and the material's just gone so quickly. So I might actually, I might actually go that route and try what you're saying. Cause yeah, tr- try it. They're cheaper. Yeah. Sir, the zirconiums are cheaper and 120 is, it's a weird grit, right? It's like, are you, are you shaping or are you finishing? Cause you know, the 36 to 60 you're shaping and you know the 220 you're finishing, but 120 is like kind of stuck in the middle. You're doing a little bit of work. I mean, in terms of shaping, you're, you're, you're removing a little bit of that, you know, final thickness down near the edge. But for the most part, you're just setting, you're setting yourself up for 220. So it's like, yeah, it's like that weird in between bit of work, bit of finishing kind of thing. I jump from 36 ceramic right to 120 grit structured. And I stay unstructured all the way up until I get to where I want to use the Scotch Bright. Ah, cool. Are they tri- uh, like Trizact or something? Or yeah, I have Trizact. I've been using the Norton Norax belts lately. Cool. Um, I feel like I get a cleaner finish with the Norax than the Trizacs, but both are awesome. I like them, and they last a super long time. Yeah, um, they're you know they're a little they're a little pricey per belt, but if you can get twenty thirty blades out of one belt. You're doing pretty good because uh, they do last a long time. Do you find, do you refresh the grit on your structured abrasives? Do you find that they like get a little clogged? People have asked me that before. I'm, I don't know how I just use them. Okay. I've like, I've found that on the higher grits, if you take like um, a diamond dresser, that's like a fine diamond dresser or even like a 60 grit ceramic belt and you just kind of like fold it up and just push that into it that it'll like clean off the it'll it'll look like a brand new belt because you're like you're kind of like shaving off some of that structured abrasive to expose like fresh a fresh layer essentially right but those are great belts because they just they last forever they last forever the only time i've ever lost them is if they broke you know like if if i'm leaning it real hard over the side of the platen and it rips or um, right. Like the bond, the, the seam gets old, you know, and they break, but I cool. think you actually came out. up with like a really, really great solution there talking about that 120. Cause I've actually never used a structured 120. I've done 220 and above with those, with the Trizacs, but I've never gone to 120 and, um, I'm, I'm going to order some right after this podcast because that's actually, that's a very interesting idea there. I, yeah, I should I should give that a try. I started using them because like a thirty six grit ceramic is super thick. So 
the thickness of that belt, if you go down to a 120, they're a lot thinner. So then the radius on your plunge line changes slightly. And I struggled really, really a lot with trying to match that up. And the structured abrasives, they're thick all the way up to the high grits. Hmm. So you, you never have to worry about that change in radius or the thickness or weight of the belt, I guess is what they call it. But, um, and then, you know, once you go into scotch brights, they're thick again. So, right. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's a good tip. That's cool. I'll check out the 120 structured abrasive. I don't think I've used them before either. Yeah, the bringing Norak. the value to the Hustle and Grind podcast here. There, there are other podcasts out there that like to talk about the value that you get, and and I think that Ryan just drops some significant value on on all you listeners. So, everyone, give Ryan some props for that. Woo woo, pat my back. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why it's great to hang out with makers because you learn so much when you hang out with other makers. Oh, it's great to brainstorm and just kind of toss ideas off of each other. It's awesome. Yeah. But yeah. so speaking of the listeners, I think we need to uh, do our last segment here. We've actually been at this quite a while. Uh, Ryan, I think it's time for the Maritime Knife Supply Listener Showcase. The Patreon Spotlight? Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Jeez. There's <laughs> just a bunch of flea bags here. Sorry, we don't even know what we're talking about. Ryan's the professional. I'm just I'm just here. <laughs> I am not a professional. Did you listen to my new podcast? I haven't had a chance yet. No, I haven't. I'm sorry. It's utter ridiculousness. Don't listen to it with like kids or old ladies around. Okay. All right. We've got well, a I don't new, know any old ladies. We've got a new Patreon this week. Woo! The work for its own, Brian Cohn. Oh, we got Brian is sponsoring the Hustle and Grind podcast as a patron? Yes, he is. Thank That's you, Brian. That's awesome. Thanks, Brian. So the list is still split up, and I don't have my la- my other laptop here, so I can't just go in and consolidate it. So we're going to go from newest to oldest this week. So we got Brian Cohn, Jared Weaver at Weaver's Customs, Maximus Knives, Ira Housewert, and then bear with me. i got to switch here. And pull up the other list, which is somewhere on my phone right there. <laughs> We've got Ed Soul, Patter Nostri Fabrica, Timber Tiger Forge, Stormlight Forge, Snake Branch Knife Works, Bremner Built Knives, Eric at Sourwood Creations, Jared at Echo Blades, Tortuga Blade Works, Crafty Man Forge, Noah Bloomberg, Driver Defense Knives, Maritime Knife Supply, Troxclair Custom Cutlery, Dennis Tyrell, Todd Harrington, Bex Armory, Mark Vanderwerf, Mark LeBlanc, Brigham Kendall, Aru Bladeworks, KnifeMaterial.at, and Donnie Dulovich. Thank you to everybody. We appreciate all of you guys. Yes, we do so much. Uh, This week's Patreon Spotlight is going to be B cone of B cone knives. So, all right, let's do B cone. Basically, so Noah, Noah, what we do is, yeah, you you can explain it. Basically, what we do is we select a random one of our patrons and we go onto their Instagram live here on the podcast and we just kind of shout out some of their work, give them a little bit of a uh, a boost if we can. Nice, kind of spotlight everything that they're doing. 
I'm going to check him out at the same time. All right. That is B.Cone, K-O-H-N, Knives, on Instagram. I'm sure most of our listeners probably know who Brian is, and actually he was a guest here not too long ago, so I'm sure you're all already following him. Uh, it looks like he crashed his 1982 Astrovan. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I heard a little bit of that story when he was on a live the other day. It was uh, it, it didn't sound like it was that much of a fun time, so Brian... We're sorry, sorry man. Yeah, we the feel thing that. them older cars are very durable. They're not like the new ones. Yeah, um, there's there, the other thing everyone, that's kind of. Oh, go ahead. As everyone knows, Brian is selling massive amounts of this very unique carbon fiber material that they use for uh, wind turbine blades. Hmm. And I think. Yes. He, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he's still doing the sale so you can buy it uh, 35 bucks a pound for one-inch wide yes. strips. Yes, one-inch wide strips. I actually just got some from him the other day, and uh, it's incredible stuff. I've worked with it before. Uh, I do have a little bit of updated feedback on the monodirectional carbon fiber. Number one, do not attempt to router the edges of it. The reason being is it will split and it will throw carbon fiber splinters into your hand. Ugh. Ooh, good to know. This is just, just a thought that I had. I definitely didn't do that because that would be stupid. But, you know, like, in theory, that could happen. So just so that everyone's aware um, that there is that possibility. And that I'm being sure said... Everybody, everybody listening to this knows that B. Cone is also the co-host of the Work For It podcast and his own interview show, Work For It yes. number two. That's right. He's also doing a really cool build along, which I really wanted to be a part of, but I haven't been able to because life is freaking crazy. Um, but he's doing a really cool build along challenge uh, with Kyle Royer, Redbeard Ops, and Wingle's Workshop. Um, so I think the the end date for that is the 24th. So if anybody out there works really quickly, there's a possibility for you to get in on that build along. Um, so check out Brian Cohn's uh, page and see if that's something you'd be interested in. Dude, I'd be so are... intimidated to do a build off with Kyle Royer. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, you're going to, you're going to do a boxing sparring session with Floyd Mayweather. Like, holy shit. <laughs> that guy is well, so good. Luckily, it looks, you're competing against him. It looks like uh, Brian's got a big batch on his bench, too, that he's he's doing for Christmas. So looks like he's going to have a lot of nice stuff coming up um, for the Christmas Good season. God, that is a lot of clamps. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I know Brian's really pushing really hard on this, this carbon fiber stuff. He's also got some other cool stuff called X-Forge, which is a – kind of like a random carbon fiber material. And anybody who uses carbon fiber in their handles knows that it's kind of a costly material. It looks really cool, but it is it is fairly costly. And the stuff that Brian's selling is literally like top of the line industrial quality. It's not made for handle scales. It's made for supercar subframes and wind turbines. So it's, it's really cool stuff. And he, he is being able to sell it for a much lower price than you would get at other places. So go help out the carbon fiber King and get yourself some, some carbon fiber from Beacon. 
the carbon fiber king. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but and make sure you wear some elbow length gloves. Sorry. Yeah. I yes, that. that is another thing. When I was shaping that stuff, that stuff gets embedded into your hands. So wear long sleeves and like some nitrile gloves to keep that stuff off of your skin because it'll get there. And even after you're done shaping it, hit it with some, uh, uh, I can't speak right now. I'm sorry. Would you put some clean oil on it, it or something? It off. Oh, okay. No, I just, I, I clean acetone. I clean everything in acetone. I use so much freaking acetone in my shop and it just, it, it, getting stuff clean, no oil on it, getting dust off of it. It's, it's great for that. So it, when I was done shaping those carbon fiber scales, I just hit it with that, you know, just, I got it in like a little squirt bottle, like tattoo artists use, um, for cleaning off skin and stuff. Mm, and I keep smart. acetone in that and it works really well. You can just, squirt it right over the stuff and it just cleans all that dust off of there. And the best part is, is that, I mean, when you're grinding it, that stuff's getting into the air. Hopefully you got a vacuum running. Hopefully you got a respirator on, but after the fact, you know, you're, you don't have all that stuff going and you just wash it off of there with that acetone. It keeps it not airborne and it gets the whole thing completely clean so that it, you're not getting that black on your hands when you're grabbing the, the night scales afterwards. So. Good I don't tip. Know how anybody tip. grinds without a respirator on? I've seen guys post videos of them grinding without a respirator on, and I'm like, man, if I do it for five seconds, my mouth tastes like metal and abrasive, and your boogers turn black, and it's just nasty. I don't know how anybody does it. You've got a beard though, so you're yeah, you, you're leaking for sure, right? I mean, are you? Do you have one of those fancy like snorkel things or something, or? Mm. No, I do. I definitely get some beard filtration in there too. So that doesn't help, but it's just for the big like part, big shape. particles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I am terrible at wearing a respirator. The one thing that I do make sure that I am always wearing a respirator for is any kind of handle shaping. Cause I just don't want that, you know, those, those glues and wood material and stuff. And, or especially if I'm using synthetics, I don't want that stuff in my lungs. I don't wear it all the time when I'm grinding blades. I probably should, but yeah, full, full admission. I don't. You're, you're more of a man than I am, Noah. <laughs> yeah, we already knew that though, didn't we? Oh yeah. <laughs> Look at that mustache. Look at this mustache. I mean, it's a lot smaller now. I got a haircut, so I felt like I had to shave and like clean up the mustache and everything. So I feel really weird, kind of naked right now. Okay, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> Let's end it with that. No. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta oh, keep those things in proportion. Yeah. Uh, no, it's been awesome having you on. Uh, this is like a weird dream for me. See, Noah was very nervous for the Jason Knight episode, and I was like, "Man, whatever." And for this episode, I was like, "Shit, it's Noah Vashon." Well, I had a lot of fun, guys. Thank you so much for having me on, and it's always great to talk to other knowledgeable makers. I picked up a few tips today too, so uh, it's it's been a blast. Thank you so much. That's humbling to think we could be able to teach you anything. That's crazy. Hey, man, everybody can teach everybody something. Yeah. All right, everybody. Guys, thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Keep on hustling. Keep on grinding.